Billy, I have a bad feeling about today's conversation. Oh, Randy, don't tell our listeners that. Okay, I confess. I don't really have a bad feeling. I'm just I'm just using a technique that today's guest talks about. He wants us to practice assuming failure for a product launch, and he's actually got a really good reason for it. He really does. And you'll have to stick around to hear all about it. But Tongi Croissant is here to tell us how he used this approach to help drive a successful product launch at Atlassian, where he's a head of product. Just one word of warning. Make sure your team and your partners understand why you're using this approach before you introduce it into a conversation. <laughs> Very good point. But let's not waste any more time on the intro. Hit the music. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content, discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Bonjour, Tongi. How are you? <laughs> Good. Uh, thank you. Uh, oui, merci. Ça va très bien. Ça va, ça va bien? <laughs> ça va très bien, merci. See, now I'm practicing my uh, school French on you, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll go very far with that in France. You can survive the first 20 seconds. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, now we've got that embarrassing intro out of the way. <laughs> so we are talking today about how you launch things and move fast and break things and everything and do product better. Um, but before we get stuck into this topic, uh, it would be great if you could give our listeners a real quick intro into who you are uh, and how you got into product. Yep. Um so I'm Tanguy. I'm a head of product at Atlassian. Um, I've been there for about nine years. Got into product a bit by chance, mistake, however you want to call it. Uh, like many people of my generation, when I started doing product, it was not really a well-defined thing. I mean, it was well-defined in Marty Kagan's blogs, but other than that in the industry, no one really knew what the job that the job even existed, including myself. So I stumbled a little bit in my career started in engineering, then uh, because I could talk, I got pulled into pre-sales. Uh, and then I was really uh, frustrated by that. So I wanted to go into more post-sales and consulting. I tried that. I did some architecture. I did some consulting. I kept going back and forth, tried to create my own startup, which went great for three years and then failed um, miserably. Uh, and at some point, I was just like, there has to be a better way. Like there has to be a, there has to be companies out there that know how to ship products. Um, and I uh, worked really, really hard to try and get into Atlassian, uh, which was a up and coming company in Australia, 900 staff at the time. Uh, the brand name was not really there, uh, but people were known for like the craft of actually shipping products. Uh, and so I, I made, I think I did like 15 interviews to get there and I learned the craft on the spot uh, there. So yeah, I'm not making it look very sexy, but that's, uh, that's how I got started. <laughs> And one of the kind of the themes of our chat today is about products and uh, how they fail. And I think you have quoted that about half of all products fail. So where, where does this number come from and, uh, and why do you think this is? So at some point I sat down and 
I was trying to prepare for an internal conference at Atlassian uh, to try and talk to more junior PMs about what they should expect when trying to ship new things. Uh, you know, exploring things that no one else was doing before, exploring new products, or trying brand new features that were radically different to everything else that Atlassian was doing and felt was like safe bets. And I actually sat down to try and, and figure out which projects worked well and which ones didn't. And I realized that the track record I had was not that great. When I say 50%, it's, it's, it's an optimistic uh, view. I'm trying to make it look good. But in effect, more than half <laughs> of the projects I worked on really didn't succeed. It's either because, like, either there were massive failures, and I worked on a few. Like, for example, I worked on HipChat for a while, which worked great. And then we completely got destroyed by Slack. But also things that we had started with, like, amazing goals in mind, but in effect, when we look back on the actual success, you know, it was used in Atlassian, for example, by 50,000 users. And 50,000 users for Atlassian is, is nothing, right? It, it's basically a, mm. a trigger to uh, kill a product or, or kill a feature. And yeah, more than half of the things I worked on landed there. And for a while, it really, really bothered me. I was like, that's like, there has to be a better way. Like, there has to be a recipe that can take me to a better track record. And, I realized after talking to more people and reading back those blogs from Marty Kagan from 2007 that actually I was about in the industry benchmark. And what mm. bothered me was more that I wish I knew that was the case and I wish I could plan with that in mind, right? So there's, there's a point after which, after which I started more doing that, which is, well, things are going to fail, right? That's the most likely outcome. Where to now? Uh, and so I started to become a lot more comfortable with this and, and trying to coach teams around that uh, because I think we generally underestimate the impact of trying to make everything work. Have you seen executives at Atlassian or executives at companies that you talk to, do they know this? Or do they recognize this? Or is this something when you mentioned they're all like, oh, yeah, I guess I kind of knew that, but I don't, they don't, no one ever goes into a project saying, yeah, there's a 50-50 chance of this working. So- since I joined Atlassian, I think we've been through waves of this epiphany where sometimes we fully recognized it, but then we realized that it was really not institutional knowledge that this was how things work. Why? Because um, Atlassian is a successful company and with success comes a lot of bias. And there's this somehow built in, like really strongly held belief that what took us here is going to take us there. And um, you mentioned stakeholders, which and, and so stakeholders and leadership is interesting because I, I see that there's often a disconnection between how the founders view the things at Atlassian and how the rest of the company operates. At, the founders are very well aware of that and they always try to push us in that direction, try things, and then if things don't succeed, we'll focus on something else, right? But in the rest of the company, we built and shipped Jira which is a very, very successful product. And the processes that we have or that we had in the company back when I started working on new products were very much optimized around that. It's working for Jira. So that's the moneymaker at Atlassian. So all the processes were built to support that and not built to support the more fast-paced, let's try, but the likelihood is that it will fail. So about three years ago, I worked with our head of, uh, our, our CPO 
And uh, the head of, of product for one area that Latin to go, hey, we have to change that and bring back this innovation bit where it's safe and okay to fail, uh, which is why we started this thing called point A, which is, uh, you can think of it kind of like an internal incubator to go, hey, we haven't really used the muscle of building new products for a long time. So let's do that and we'll design the process with failure in mind. So it's expected that things will fail and we want a track record of, you know, if we can launch three new products out of it, we'll be happy. And we know we'll have more than a hundred uh, pitching into this process. And that started to bring back this uh, culture of, no, 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 actually it's, it's going to fail. Like think about it this way. And so how are you going to make sure that it doesn't for the next few months? Um, and this was then because of some successes that came out of it, which is always the fucked up part, which is people look at successes to understand that failure is necessary because of some successes that came out of it, we were able then to go back and explain like, this is the process that we took that we believe should be taken in other parts of Atlassian, including in stuff that is successful, because otherwise we build a lot of weight in all our products for things that are not used that we should really should be killing. Uh, and so I, I think it's not a uh, zero one type of uh, answer. It's more like it's a culture thing. Uh, and uh, having the understanding and the knowledge that it's okay to fail and having seen teams fail and be okay and get back on their feet and seeing the result of that in actual successes um, is uh, changing our culture on, on, on that front. So you've recently launched uh, Jira's product discovery tool. How did kind of embracing this notion that you would fail sort of help your team with this? Or, and, and how did you kind of make that part of the, I guess, the sort of principles of like how you're working? Right. Yeah. So the, um, there was a kind of a playbook for how we build products at Atlassian that was trying to go as fast as possible to show me that a lot of users are using this, right? So that was most of the features that I, or, or, or products that I worked on before, like really the, 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 the goal I was like, get us to this, get us to this path that goes from zero to millions of users. And if you can justify that, then you're good and you can keep getting funded and, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm simplifying, of course, a little bit, but that was more or less the essence mm. of how we were working. And so when I approached this, I was like, well, that's, if we assume that things will fail, then that's probably a bad way to approach this. That's a bad way to approach this because if we ship um, half-baked solution in Jira that's used by millions of users today and we don't get it right enough, then they would come in, they'll try it, they probably wouldn't understand it, they would see no value in it, they'd churn quickly, it would be a uphill battle to bring them back whenever we're ready to accept them. And in the end, like we would, uh, we would probably fail faster if we assume that it was successful from the get-go. So instead, the processes that we designed when starting this product were more around what do we need to learn at which stage so that we can address those questions head on and actually like be as crafty as we can to try and do that as quickly as possible and either make a case for, no, 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 no. Look, we actually overcame these hurdles. We should continue or, well, you know what? It's really not working. We should stop. 
And it's much, much harder to stop something that's got a lot of investment behind it and where there's a, already a belief that the thing will work. So we started from, no, 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 it's not going to work. And no, we don't want a big funding. We just want three people to work on this to unpack a bunch of assumptions that we've made. Right. And then mm. whenever we got to the stage where we're like, we can uh, actually start testing this with a, like a, a, with users, we're like, well, we're for a while, we just work with 10 companies and we'll show that it actually gives value to them. And then when we got there, we we're like, no, no, we're not bringing it to everyone yet. We don't know whether we can get from 10 to 100 and then from 100 to 1,000 companies and then from 1,000 to 10,000. And so uh, sort of like the, the process was designed so that we can and right size the questions and the answers to be able to get us to the next stage of this product that made the most sense without getting the whole company to want to overinvest. Because again, Atlassian, millions of users, like we could funnel something to Jira users, millions of Jira users overnight. And we were like, no, 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 let's not do that. Because you know what? We don't know if it's going to be successful. Remember that. Well, that helped us a lot as mm. well to have to speak about it this way is, remember, we're a big company, which means that there are a lot of teams and there's a lot of typically dependencies when we ship stuff. And there's nothing that slows you down as much as having dependencies. Is this an approach that you would use uh, with a smaller company or is, you know, where you didn't already have access to this many customers? Or is this something you think makes sense where you already have people in the ecosystem, in the environment, and you're trying to expand uh, the tools that they use? Uh, what I'm talking about here is very, very contextual to the situation that we are in, which is, which is the latter. If I'm a startup, I have no choice. I don't have these millions of users I can tap into, right? So uh, probably yeah. best to start and drum up interest from the get-go, focus a lot more on distribution from the get-go, because that's going to be the stuff that's going to be the hardest to, to get to. You may have the great solution. If no one hears about it, no one knows about it, you don't have a solution. You have something that's just a, a pipe dream. So it's, uh, it's very contextual to that big company thing, right? Same with this question of dependencies. If you are a startup, you don't have dependencies. You're... You, you control your own fate for us. We're building something in Jira. And when we want to improve an experience that already exists, there's two questions. One is, do we work with that team to improve it? Or two is, do we do it ourselves and diverge from what is currently status quo in the experience? Uh, and the starting from failure may actually made us go with, well, let's remove dependencies because we don't know if it's going to work. So we don't want to have even more of Atlassian investing in it. And two, it gave us the autonomy to be able to test stuff in that big company because we clearly articulated, we don't know if it's going to work. We're testing an experience. We are not engaging with your team. We are not using your component. We are not asking you to make changes to it. Nothing against you. It's just that it's likely that in six months we don't exist anymore, right, as a product. Mm. So that helped us a lot, like, and, and dreaming, like, a drumming that beat inside Atlassian for for that for that long probably about two years created a space where we could actually run like a startup in a big company which is something i kept hearing about and never believed in being a startup in a big company because you mm. kind of have the benefits of one without the struggles but at the same time you've got all the uh, drawbacks of, of a big company so anyway that's like that's that's how really embracing failure has, has so many ramifications that makes that it's um it's usually a good bet and you have your five phases that you kind of came came up with or or went through during this process. So, what are those five phases, and are, are they? Do you think that they flex or change depending on 
um, what you're going through? Or are they are they kind of fixed? Yeah. So the these five stages are um, wonder, explore, make, impact, and scale, and they come from something we've been using internally at Atlassian, which we used to call the Atlassian way, which was a bit pompous at the time, right? Uh, but we were trying to formalize as a company, how do we, how do we create products? And those five stages came, came out of that. You can think of it as a framework to approach new things, uh, to ask the right questions at the right moments. And it's not specific to creating a product from scratch or a feature. It's, it applies really for any type of problem solution exploration. Uh, I recently had a good long chat with uh, John Cutler, who's, uh, as you know, super influential in the, in the product space. And he, he said something that really resonated with me, which is product work is like a fractal. So you can look at it like for a feature, but then you can have the same type of considerations, same process for a product or for a collection of products, a portfolio and, and so on and so forth. And at each level, you can pretty much apply the same principles. This is the same here. Uh, so wonder is about, and it's called wonder for a reason. It's about unpacking problems slash opportunities slash really, really just trying to figure out where the hell you want to go. And often it's chaotic uh, in that it's not a straight line. Uh, for example, this speech for creating this product, I created it after doing explorations and research in a field that's completely separate, uh, which, and at some point I opened the door by reading an article and then found some research from internally at Atlassian and went, whoa, there's something there. And as, as I was wondering, I started to find something that I was like, okay, that's, that's an itch I need to scratch. And so let's keep unpacking that. So let's pull that string, right? And see where it leads. That's wonder. Uh, and I often find that uh, in product teams, we don't leave enough time for things like this. Everything needs to be assigned, you know, to a strategy or a goal or very, very early on, or at least for a lot of the product managers I talk to, and there needs to be space for wondering because that's how, actually how we often unpack the biggest opportunities. Hey folks, are you looking for an opportunity to learn from the best, connect with other PMs and sharpen your skills? Then you won't want to miss MTPCon in San Francisco on June 14th. This year's lineup of incredible speakers includes Christian Idioti, a partner at Silicon Valley Product Group, Yiwei Ang, Chief Product Officer at Tawabat, Natalia Williams, Chief Product Officer at Hootsuite, and many more. Also, check out the schedule on June 13th. The team have arranged a bunch of in-person interactive workshops led by experienced product managers who will share their secrets and demonstrate their tips for success. These workshops are designed to be for everyone total newbies and seasoned pros alike. Go learn some stuff and make some new product friends. So what are you waiting for? Grab your tickets now at mindtheproduct.com slash San Francisco, and we'll see you there. Before we go into the next mm -hmm. phase, I'm just curious, is this like a discrete phase? Do you treat this as almost waterfall? You complete wonder, then you go to explore? Or is this more of just a guideline and a checkpoint and say, okay, we're, we're kind of at this place. We don't want to commit more resources until we have defined something. You know, we know 
And we may come back to this, but we've defined the objective of the wonder state. Yeah, so wonder is about problems, explore is about solutions, make is about building it for real. If you think about them as phases, you've already, you're already looking at it through the wrong lens. So it's more what you described. Often you don't understand the problem enough until you've actually tried to explore solutions, go through them with customers, and then you go, oh, I understand better about the problem now because they actually gave me an example for how this would help them. But then as we were unpacking this, we realized that that solution, yes, would help, but it's not that important to them, for example. So wonder and explore go hand in hand. Uh, it's more like a checkpoint for, for questions to answer. And those questions for wonder are, do we have the right problems? Do we know who's got this problem? Is it a pervasive problem? And relative to all the other problems people have, like is, is that really something that we believe we should go after? And do we have legitimacy in doing so? Uh, so a big part of this is why Atlassian? Uh, so in this product that I'm currently working on, we are doing this for product managers. Why Atlassian is very simple because most product managers spend their days in Jira and a lot of them are trying to structure product conversations. And they currently can't do that in Jira because Jira is poorly designed for that. And it's a huge pain point that they've got. So legitimacy for why Atlassian, it's a collaboration product. That's what we focus on. Jira is used by all these product managers already. They are asking us for it all the time. So those are kind of the questions that we're trying to answer in Wanda. When in Explore, it's really more into solutions, uh, but the solutions often like inform the problem. And then Make is about building, but when you explore, you often need to create quick prototypes and they're throwaway, right? So it doesn't mean like first you do the designs and then you do the implementation. It's more like trying to answer the right questions so that you have a certain amount of certainty that it's okay to commit more resources. So for us, Wonder was committing a team of three, two PMs and a designer. Explore was a commitment to have a bit bigger team with engineers to be able to spike stuff, like five, and make was a commitment to try to get to a thousand customers. And so like we actually need a bigger team to be able to do that. But kind of right-sizing the investments help, helps us, even though at every point in time, you can work in any one of these stages. Today, for example, we're unpacking things around how product managers work with their stakeholders on with them on their feedback, right? And people keep asking us about specific features, you know, because they come from competing apps or they've got a view in their head on, on to how that should work. And so we could build that, but as you know, not the right thing to do for a product manager. So that's where we are in, we're back in, in Wanda here, where, where we're like, so who do you work with? Why are things done this way? Why do you, like, why do you currently present roadmaps this way with your stakeholders and which leads to feedback coming this way? And like, and is that working for you? Is that working for them? What's your motivation for giving feedback? What's your motivation for receiving feedback? And are those matching? Is there the right expect expectations and alignment on that side, on both sides. And, and so that's, we are now a product. We're exploring potentially new features. Who knows? That's the wonder phase that we have for one part of the product today where we might expand more on, the, on its value, but it's, it's, it's both for the product and for each of the product areas. And when you're working with these um, kind of potential customers, you know, as a big brand, do you have to, like, what does that relationship look like? Because I imagine, you know, they're probably Atlassian customers in other 
you know, purchases of Jira or Confluence. Um, is there a level of expectation that they come with of like how you're going to be working with them? You know, would they expect to then have the product for free or would they expect to be compensated in some way? Because, you know, you're not a you're not a kind of startup where well, you are a startup within, but you're within a much bigger organization. So I'm just curious as to how you kind of recruited those initial customers and what that sort of relationship looked like. Yeah, it's very interesting because Atlassian is many things and many phases and it's different things to different people. And so we have fast paced things. We've got new products. We've got very established products all at once. And we actually do have uh, great ways to recruit customers to work with. One, for example, that I use all the time is the Atlassian community, community.atlassian.com. Users go there and they support each other. And often product teams chime in there as well. My hypothesis when starting this was, well, we could probably recruit our users from there and we could work with them directly there. And we could, let's figure out the quickest way that we can get something to them so that they can test it and iterate with us on that. And so we found customers, we clearly set the expectation with them from the beginning. So like, we're looking for people who can help us unpack these problems. We had people coming in. We started to have discussions with them. And in there, we identified 10 that we would call lighthouse customers. So they are facing the problem in a very acute way. They are very clear communicators. They've got agency to change things in their setup. They've tried many ways to do this before uh, and failed. And they're not using any competitor app. So if we could find people that were ticking these boxes, then we were trying to convince them to work with us so that we could actually co-design the app together, which is why, although Atlassian is like, there's all these support channels where you can do things at scale and so on and so forth. That's not the approach that we took as a, as a young product. Instead, we created a Slack group. We invited all the customers there. We were in Zoom with them. Uh, every day, like exactly like a startup would do, except it was much easier for us to recruit people because there were already all these channels where our customers were very active in giving feedback and trying to support each other there as well. So it's kind of uh, the benefits of a, of a big company, but with a lot of freedom to work with uh, customers in a very different way, much more hands-on. And for that, we just had to go through the hoops of checking that things were fine with the T's and C's and um, privacy and this and that to go. This is a beta program. It's now part of our um, terms and conditions. When you sign up to our cloud products, we say that's an early access program and here are, here's everything that's specific to that, which means that the software itself can be decommissioned from one day to the next. Uh, and people know that we actually had created, we set the expectation there and we had plans to move them out if it failed. Uh, we'll contact you. We'll talk to you on Slack. We'll talk to you on Zoom. We'll send you emails. Uh, you agree to share a bunch of data with us and, and stuff like that, which meant that we could really be in a more startup mode there, what you would typically expect in a startup. So at this point, you're testing things like feasibility. Can you solve the problem or is it usable? Is it desirable? And you're getting good results, but you're also focusing on product managers and we have no budget. So how do you prove viability for something like this? Well, the good thing is uh, Atlassian's pr- the existing pricing model uh, works pretty well for things like this already. So in the list of risks that we had assessed for this project from the beginning, the hardest part would not be what you get the budget, but the willingness to pay for the value, which is also why we 
we designed the pricing in a way that would make it attractive as a seeing this as kind of an add-on to your existing Jira. So it could roll down to the, like roll up in the same budget. And the reason we put the price at really low compared to the baseline that you see on the market, because that's, that's our business model as well, uh, which is high volume, low cost, low touch. So let's just say that Atlassian's current business model, where we're trying to fit in, the low cost that we were able to afford because we saw like pervasive problems that would be faced by product teams, but also engineering, uh, who also need to prioritize things with their teams. And uh, generally that combined low price, high volume meant that it felt it, it fits the Atlassian model and it could roll up into existing budgets. You already pay for Jira. If you pay 15% more, you get this value on top, for example, right? That's about how we, we, we designed this whole thing. It's not as scientific as I would love it to be. Uh, but we probably spent close to six months in interviews and um, on, around willingness to pay and trying to talk to the buyers as well as the as the product managers and so on and so forth. So we, anyway, we did the math. It all checks out in a spreadsheet. We are launching this product, making it paid super soon in like a couple of weeks. Uh, so we'll know for sure. We'll know for sure then whether it was the right, yeah, whether it was enough. <laughs> And um, so there's, I guess that there's two kind of phases as well that we haven't really gone into, which was the impact and scale. And I think impact was kind of going into beta or, and then scale is, is that kind of that full launch that, that you just talked about. But just thinking about the, the beta sort of side of things, like there's that classic quote, I don't, I can't remember who said it, but of like, if you launched your product and and you weren't embarrassed about it then you've launched it too late <laughs> like how did you were you slightly embarrassed when you went into your beta phase and like how did you decide what kind of criteria did you have for for going into that beta phase and did you also go into that beta phase still with this view of like this still might fail good question uh so wonder explore make impact and scale wonder problem exploration everything is basically in sp spreadsheets and mirrors and stuff like that explore most of it is done in figma we have a prototype we play with it with like 10 users make we try to go from 10 companies that use it to 100 which means that we need to polish a lot of the experience because well 10 companies the 10 companies that we started with might not have the same appetite for things being unpolished and scrappy and uh, the quality being half-baked and things looking really bad. So we had to go to one level of polish there, but just enough to get to this 100. Impact is when we have, okay, the alpha was successful with 100 customers. We now want to grow to 1,000. And so growing to 1,000, again, doesn't happen overnight. It means that we need to build enough demand for it. Uh, so like... Uh, website so that people could sign up to the product means that we need to be able to onboard these people so they understand the value because now we can talk to everyone, you know, face-to-face -to, -face to onboard them into the, the product, which is what we were doing in the beginning, right? One hour session that let us get you started. No, not the product needed to be able to do that. That's also where we needed to make sure that we didn't have high churn. So we focus on that. So first, really uh, focused on making sure people understand, making sure that they stay um, and then start to trickle more people in, see how that works, that type of thing. So that whenever we got to the end of beta, 
is when we had high confidence that this could actually work as a business and we could uh, get to the next stage. Uh, the end of beta was meant to be at 1,000 customers, except that we tried to send email to our, emails to our user base to tease our demand and poof, it skyrocketed. And so we got into the thousands of teams before we even uh, hit GA, which got us into more questions and problems like, hey, from a compliance standpoint, we're not there. From a reliability standpoint, we're not there. We're not ready for this and so on. That all happened during the beta where we kind of went from, wow, this is amazing. People really want this to freaking out because the thing would fall over and uh, we'd get a major incidents uh, or something in terms of compliance. We'd lose a lot of data. I mean, it was like, that's the, by the time we needed to go to G8, it was already too late. Uh, but it was also <laughs> the right moment, right? Because if we had tried to do that before and the product was not getting distraction, there would have been little point in doing all this work. So we were embarrassed Fucking hell, I was embarrassed by this thing. I'm still embarrassed every day by how little it's supposed to do if we claim that we're doing this for product managers. We get product managers singing the praises, but I'm looking at this going, it's just not enough. And it's been like that since day one, <laughs> right? That's the, that's the reality of it. Yeah, I wish there was some ma magic, magic recipe, I guess. Mainly, the way I'd like to think about this is there's important moments like entering an alpha exiting it, going into a beta. And so we, we clearly laid out what it meant and where the quality level needed to be at these stages. And then we also changed all the rituals we used in the team to be able to match that. So for example, when we went from, say, 100 companies to 1,000 companies, that's when we realized, well, the bugs we've got fairly frequently, we can't have those anymore the, um, uh, because that would, the, ch the churn will go, will go way up and then there's no point in funneling more, like telling more people about this product. Mm. And so we need to rethink how we work. We're not a prototype team anymore. We're now a product team. And so what are the best practices to do that? Well, what we landed on was this pyramid of reliability is at the base, usability is in the middle, and new features at, at the very top. And we reorganized the teams to focus on that. So instead of just being embarrassed, it was like, well, okay, the what's important is First and foremost, the app is up, it's performing, it's reliable, meaning that when people try to do something, it does the thing, or it tells them how to do the thing if they can't do the thing, like all of that needs to be like spot on. Then we'll stop adding new features every week and instead we'll focus on improving the current experiences that work, stop the experiences that don't work, retire a bunch of features, focus and rewrite the ones that work really well. And then there's a sliver on top where we we'll build new features where we still do stuff the, the, the scrappy way. So that helped us in trying to stay on top of this. You know, it grows, it grows, it grows, and then it quickly becomes unmanageable in a bunch of different aspects. And I've seen many teams like crumbling under the success of something. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's just the grind. <laughs> That's a great answer. Okay, we've got time for, for just one more question, and uh, we can't go deeper into all of these things right now, but you did a really good talk on the topic, and we'll put the link in the show notes for anyone who wants to go into that. I'm curious, uh, after you've done this talk, after after as people have learned this from you, have people come up to you and asked, how do I apply this to, to my company? Is there some advice that you would give about uh, the, that starting stage of a st uh, how do you introduce the concept of starting with failure and doing it successfully? 
with the assumption of failure, that is. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I'm, I, I feel for product managers, honestly, we've got a really tough job and where I feel like the job itself is ill-defined uh, and that a lot of pressure is put on product managers without the without the ability to make the changes that would make them successful. And I've seen that a lot uh, after the talk where a lot of people felt inspired to talk to me about things where they failed, for example, or that their organization like was absolutely not fine with this, this concept where half of their things might not work. And so they're, there, there is a culture problem overall. And I, I think it's not just, it's not just product managers is the way businesses work and, and trying to make everything predictable and create processes that would always try to make things predictable. So what I see as the biggest challenge for us now is actually trying to address that. And at this stage, I'll be honest, we have no clue how to do it. We're exploring a bunch of different options, but to make, to really help product managers and for them to actually be successful in the tool, we need to help them a bit to be able to create these, these pockets of this space where they can actually do their work. Uh, and we need to be able to do that in a way that doesn't create another safe, right? This, this, this illusion that you can enforce a process across the whole company and, and things will suddenly become predictable and fine. Uh, so instead, how do we do it in a way that clearly explains and guides people towards now and give teams autonomy really like, and this is what it means in reality, not just the, the concepts, but in, like, this is how you do it. This is how you say no to dependencies or this or that. This is how you should ask people for roadmaps that actually like tell that story and, and, and clearly explains how they're going after the hard questions and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, um, it's an area we'll, we'll, we are ourselves discovering how to do that for ourselves. Uh, so I, I won't have the pretension that we can just explain to the whole market how to do it, but we'll certainly try to uh, lead by example there and keep doing our product out in the open, which is why we have this community where we talk very openly, we share the roadmaps, we discuss features. We, we do all of that openly in, in this community because we've heard people say, hey, that really helps me understand a bit more like how you meant to use the app because I didn't understand the ways of working behind it. So yeah, uh, let's just say that we're at the dawn of a new era overall where product management is either going to make it as a craft or like other crafts before will disappear to be replaced by the next iteration, which I think is possible. Well, we used to have business analysts, project managers. Now let's try product managers who do absolutely everything. Maybe at some point it's going to be specialized in more, you know, uh, different crafts. I don't think anything is settled there yet, uh, which is why it's so exciting to be in product really. Oh God, then we'll have to iterate on the podcast and do something else. <laughs> Danke, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Today. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. I really, I really enjoyed it as well. Uh, I wish my answers were more coherent at times, but I hope it was entertaining at least. <laughs> Thank you so much. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs> 